0: Well, there was a husband and a wife. They were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Of course, they were posing for photos when the husband suddenly burst into tears. The wife is there smiling, and the husband's weeping. She turns and she asks him, she says, honey, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Well, he answers her. He says, 50 years ago today, your dad stuck a shotgun in my back and said that if I didn't marry you, he'd sit to it. I'd spend the next 50 years in jail. It just dawned on me. If I hadn't taken heat, I'd be a free man tomorrow. <laughs> it's funny. Well, in chapter 3 of Peter, Peter teaches us how to have a no-regrets marriage. If you follow God's blueprint for marriage, then 50 years from now, you'll be glad you tied the knot. And it's girls first, by the way. Peter begins by addressing the wives, their boundaries, their behavior, and their beauty. Verse 1, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. See, God's plan for Christian marriage calls for an ordered equality. Both partners are equal in value but different in roles. God is designed. The home and the church to be a place where men lead and women follow. Of course, this doesn't mean that somehow women are inferior to men, not hardly. Women are much more often much smarter than men. I admit that. But in marriage, God is painting a picture. He's painting a portrait of Christ's relationship with His church. That's why husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and wives are are to respond to their husbands as the church is to respond to Christ. In verse 1 here, the Greek word translated submissive is the word hupotasso. It means to arrange under or to work within a set of boundaries. You see, the husband is called to pursue God's will for his life, and it's those pursuits that then form the boundaries for the rest of the family. A wife is free to pursue her own interests, as long as she arranges her activities around her husband. Reminds me of what Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, once wrote. She said, The best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. Well, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word They, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, Realize, when the gospel was first preached, there were no Christian marriages, because there were no Christians, not yet. Invariably, some folks became followers of Jesus, while their spouses did not. And this put a tremendous strain on a marriage. Imagine a lady coming to know Christ, her whole world changes, she suddenly falls in love with Jesus, yet she can't share the most important passion with her husband. She urgently wants him to come to know Jesus too. Now, these desperate housewives, they were prone to witness to their man constantly. They would put tracts in his lunchbox, and they would write Bible verses on little slips of paper and put them in his underwear drawer. She would push and conjole him to try to come to Christ. But you see, very few folks get nagged into heaven, do they? And here Peter teaches Christian wives how to change their husbands. Not with words, but without a word. See, a Christian influences their spouse not by badgering or by manipulating, but by godly, loving, winsome conduct. Peter says, you change a spouse when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Chaste means purity. You change a spouse not by meddling, but by modeling grace and godliness and goodness. It was in 1805 that a missionary from the Boston Missionary Society preached to the Indians of upstate New York. After the man's message, Chief Red Jacket told him. He said, Well... We'll wait a while and see what effect your preaching has had upon your own people. If we find it does them good, makes them honest and less inclined to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you've said. I like that. And ladies, that may just be the approach old Chief Stubborn Heart, the one you live with, is taking towards your newfound faith. When he sees the gospel change your life, then maybe he'll pay attention to what it can do for him. Verse 3 says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, I don't believe... That Peter is saying that a woman can't style her hair or sport jewelry or wear fashionable clothes. For if I have learned anything about being married, it's this women love to accessorize. There is a funny quote from the movie Steel Magnolias The only thing that sets women apart from the animals is our ability to accessorize. Women can dress mod but modest. And Peter's point here is that a wife shouldn't substitute outward attractiveness for inner beauty. A woman should emphasize the incorruptible beauty that neither time nor gravity can spoil. There's an old saying, marrying a woman for her good looks is like buying a house for the paint job. Eventually, the fresh paint will chip and fade. That's why a wife who wants to remain beautiful in her her husband's eyes and in God's sight needs a gentle and a soft-spoken and a humble spirit. And then he says in verse 5, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, wow. Sarah called Abraham Lord. She treated him as the king of her castle. And guess what? He loved her in return. I want you to know, Kathy shows me ten times the respect that I deserve. But she knows I tend to live up to the respect that she shows me. Realize women need love, but men need respect. Ladies, when you respect your husband and what he does for your family and you let him know it, that man will lasso the moon for you. There is nothing he won't do for you. Two politicians, they were once embroiled in a fiery debate. One man shouted, he said, what about those powerful special interest groups that control and manipulate you? The politician under attack, he shouted back, he said, now wait just a minute, you leave my wife out of this. A wife does have a powerful, powerful sway over her husband. And a wise wife uses it to build him up, not tear him down. Well, that's to the women. Did you enjoy that? Now he addresses the husbands. We've got a lot for us too. He gives us three commands for how a husband should treat his wife. Dwell with her, understand her, and honor her. He says in verse 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them. And I can hear some of you husbands now, Man, I got this. I live in the same house with her. I sleep in the same bed. We eat at the same table. I'm dwelling with my wife. But just living under the same roof isn't dwelling with your wife. Too many husbands are at home in body only. God wants us to remain engaged and be involved in our families. We're to dwell with our wives with understanding. You know, it's been said, Every husband needs to know what makes his wife tick, what tickles her, and what ticks her off. Men, do you seek to understand your wife? A Harvard University study revealed that the average married couple spends 37 minutes in communication. That's not 37 minutes a day, but 37 minutes a week. On a recent flight, I picked up a Delta magazine, which had a report in it, on pet owners, and it said that the average dog owner talks two hours a week to his dog. Now, I did a little quick calculation. That means that we talk over three times as much to our dog as we do to our wife. This is why men are so clueless. You've got to take the time and make the effort if you want to communicate. Well, Peter also commands us giving honor to the wife. Guys, do you treat your wife special? Do you compliment her and brag on her and encourage her? You know what it means to be appreciated at work for a job well done. Well, it means even more for a wife when it comes from her husband. Peter says, honor her as to the weaker vessel. And despite the feminist propaganda we hear today, on the whole, most men are physically stronger than most women. There are exceptions. But generally, it's true. And yet here, Peter calls women weaker, but only as a crystal goblet is weaker than a plastic mug. You see, the mug is durable and rugged. It's stronger. It's easier to knock around. But that crystal's finery and delicacy makes it much more valuable. That's how we should treat our wives. A wife brings a tenderness to the family that men lack, Peter is telling us to honor our wives for her sensitivity. Once I chaperoned my son Zach's 7th grade science class on a field trip down to Jekyll Island, for three days we learned all I ever wanted to know about marine biology. Most of it went through one ear and out the other. But one lesson stuck. When a female China-backed crab molts or sheds her shell, It takes a few days for her new shell to harden, and this leaves the female vulnerable. And yet for those days, the male crab actually covers her with his body. She attaches herself to his underbelly, and he carries her until she's again able to protect herself. And men, there are times when your wife will get a little crabby. She'll become vulnerable, and that's when she needs you to cover her and to carry her, not criticize her. This is what it means to honor the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. We're heirs together. Remember, before she's your wife, she's your sister. Your wife is God's girl. And the Father protects His daughters. Men, be very, very careful how you treat her. And for a good reason, that your prayers may not be hindered. Ever, ever try to pray after you get in a fight with your wife, guys? Has this ever happened to anybody? Yeah. Are we going to get this? You know what that is? That's static on the line. And that's what I get when I try to pray after I get in a fight with my wife. Hey, hey, nothing but static. You know, the only prayers that ever get off the ground in those situations are, forgive me, Lord. It's when I repent. Hey, we're to be, remember that we're heirs together of the grace of life, lest our prayers be hindered. Then he says in verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now remember, our writer here is Peter. This is the disciple who grabbed the sword and tried to split the skull of the Jewish henchman had come to arrest Jesus. Malchus swerved at the last minute, and he missed his head, and he clipped off his ear. This was sword-slinging Peter. Now, this is the same Peter who's now changed his mind. He's changed his tune. For he says, don't return evil for evil, but bless those who revile." You see, Peter had learned a new way of dealing with injustice. I'm sure it started there with Malchus. Jesus, you remember, he picked up the severed ear out of the dirt, must have blown it off, wiped it off, and then he miraculously reattached it to Malchus's head. He returned good for evil, blessing for cursing. And shouldn't his followers do the same? In the coming days, Peter would see Jesus take all the hate that this world could muster and yet retaliate with love. And in doing so, he won our forgiveness. Peter had always wanted to follow Jesus. Now he's finally learning how. And so he says in verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. Did you know God's ears are open to your prayers? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I read where the average American office worker receives 121 emails a day. 121 emails. Yet can you imagine God's inbox? How many prayers does he receive? Yet his eyes are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the prayers of those who follow him. Verse 13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And so he's telling them, Repay evil with good, Think before you speak. Seek peace. These are all good traits that should endear people to you. But even if you suffer for doing what's right, don't be afraid. God can still cause His blessings to abound. For when trouble arises, here's what to do. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. A reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. See, persecution can become an opportunity for witness. And so he's telling us here to be ready, to be ready for those opportunities we have to share our faith. Once my brother Ken, he and some friends of his, they went to downtown Atlanta to do some street witnessing. Well, he approached this guy. This guy was wearing this turban on his head and wearing this long robe. Really a strange guy. And Ken began to tell him about Jesus. Well, this guy replied by quoting scripture. Ken could tell he was twisting the Bible. He was taking it out of context, but he didn't really know how to answer the man. And the man really painted my brother into a corner. That's when he suddenly pulled a pocket New Testament out of his robe and he shook it right in my brother's face. And he asked him, he said, do you know how David killed Goliath? Ken kind of shrugged. And that's when he answered, he said, it was with his own sword. And that's exactly what I've done with you. My brother says that was the moment in his life he decided to go to seminary and learn exactly why he believed what he believed. He has prepared himself to give a defense for the hope that's within him. And we need to do the same. Peter continues, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if the will of God, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In short, not all suffering is created equal. Some Christians are persecuted and rightfully so. I mean, they're proud, they're obnoxious, they act like jerks. There's no merit whatsoever in that kind of suffering. If you suffer, make sure it's for a noble cause, he says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Jesus suffered to atone for our sin. He died in our place once and for all, the just for the unjust. Jesus died that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared now recall there was 120 years of divine long suffering before the global flood before God's judgment came upon man Noah worked and warned for 12 decades. Don't ever say God isn't patient. He wants people to repent. In Ephesians 4, we're told that after Jesus died on the cross, his spirit descended to Hades. Not to hellfire per se, but to Abraham's bosom. Jesus spoke of Hades in Luke chapter 16. It was the Old Testament home of the believing dead. Hades was like a duplex. One side of the place was a comfort for believers. Jesus called it paradise. He said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The other side of Hades was a place of torment for unbelievers. And it was in Hades that Jesus preached during those three days between his death and resurrection of God's grace and of his own work on the cross. To the Old Testament saints who had believed in advance of God's promise, Jesus' sermon was a validation that God had sent his atoning sacrifice, and that was him. To the disobedient spirits in torment who had rejected God's promise, his sermon validated their just punishment. Well, Peter continues to speak about this time of the flood. He says, In which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved. Through water. Only eight souls heeded Noah's warning and boarded his ark. It's amazing. Human existence was salvaged by eight souls Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. You know, today the flood of Noah has tremendous historical and geological relevance. A semblance of the story of Noah is attested to in almost every ancient culture. And the best explanation for the enormous fossil record in the earth's crust is the massive effects of a global flood. We definitely believe in the flood. But the flood's relevance is not only historical and geological, it's also typological. For he says in verse 21, For there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism." Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Peter isn't talking about water baptism here. That accomplishes little more than a bath. It's spiritual conversion, spiritual baptism that cleanses us inwardly. You see, when we come to know Christ, we die to our sin. And we are raised to a new life in Him. A spiritual baptism does for us what the flood did for its survivors. We escape judgment and we receive new life. That's what happened at the flood, and that's what happens to us when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. Jesus rose from the dead, and he has been exalted to God's right hand. Now, all the universe is under Jesus' authority. All of God's creation answers to him. Well, Chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What Peter's saying here is that persecution has a purifying effect on our faith. It crystallizes our commitment. You see, when you're faced with real persecution, with some physical loss for following Christ, it forces you to count the cost. You have to take a stand. See, persecution can encourage a believer, verse 2, that he no longer should live in the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. I mean, once you've paid a price for following Jesus, there's no turning back now. Persecution creates an all-in attitude. He says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Boy, apparently Peter's readers had quite a past. Sounds like they were part of a frat house. Sexual lewdness and wild parties and even drinking games. But Peter challenges them. Haven't you wasted enough of your life? Isn't it now time to count for Christ? It should be. He says, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. This word dissipation, it means out of control partying. It's kind of a rager mentality. And Peter here says that it's how, how his readers used to live. And now that they're Christians, their former friends are complaining. Oh, she used to be so cool. Oh, he's no fun anymore. You know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've experienced this. Your former friends now snicker at you. They don't understand why you want it out, why you've changed your lifestyle. Yet in the end, they won't be snickering. For Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. One day, they're going to meet their master. and It's all going to make sense. Well, Verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Again, Peter is thinking of those souls in Hades to whom Jesus had preached. For everyone, dead or alive, will in the end be judged by how they treated Jesus. See, the people who lived before Jesus, did they trust in the promise of his coming? The people who live after Jesus, do they trust? In his finished work, for every person is judged similarly, did they trust in Jesus. He says in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Notice Peter believed he was living in the last days, and in essence he was. Since Jesus ascended to heaven, nothing has to happen prophetically before he returns. He says, and above all things have fervent love for one another. Why? For love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. On our high school baseball team, we had an outfielder who couldn't catch a beach ball. Every time a ball was hit in his direction, everybody on the team cringed. We knew it was a potential disaster. But this kid was always in the starting lineup. The coach always had him in the starting lineup. And do you know why? Because he could hit. Man, could he hit. Hitting was so vital that it covered a multitude of errors. And this is what Peter here says about love. See, you can be a bumbling, stumbling believer. You can have some really rough edges, man, but if you love a lot, God is going to find a place for you in his lineup. God is going to make sure you're in his starting lineup every game. You don't have to be skilled or gifted to count for God. He packs his lineup with heavy-hitting lovers. All you got to do is love a lot, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And in the next few verses here, Peter speaks about spiritual gifts. God has bestowed upon each of us a certain gift, and we need to use that gift. In fact, we either use it or we lose it. And notice the gift spoken of here in verse 9. The gift of hospitality. You know, some folks have a knack, a supernatural knack for making people feel welcome, loved, and wanted. God has worked many a miracle through the gift of hospitality. Then verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. This is also a spiritual gift of speaking spontaneous words or messages from God. This gift is called prophecy. If you have it, then you need to speak only when God tells you to. We need God's word, not more opinions. And then there's also the gift of ministry or service. For if anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Guys, we can't be surprised by persecution. If the world nailed Jesus to a tree, don't expect it to roll out the red carpet for you and me. Don't consider it strange when it comes. He's telling us here, it's time to warm up to the idea of fiery trials. He's warning us. And we should be able to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Christians who are asked to share in Christ's sufferings, his momentary sufferings, will also share in his eternal glory. We may suffer today, but we will rejoice forever. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Now, now you see, you and I live at a time and in a place where following Jesus is relatively easy. We live in America. But you need to understand, that could change overnight. Where being a Christian means drawing fire and being treated unfairly and suffering for Christ's sake. This is why we have to beware. Don't think it's strange when the fiery trial comes upon you. He says, verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Again, if you suffer as a believer, you glorify God. But if you're ridiculed for doing evil or sticking your nose in other people's business, then just shame on you. You're bringing shame to his name. He says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's that's something to think about. It's time for judgment to come to the house of God. You know, I would think one of the biggest obstacles to the evangelization of this world is the selfishness and hypocrisy. In the church. Guys, we can't draw people out of darkness if we're asleep in the light. This is why God's judgment should start with God's people. He says, And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, if God isn't squeamish about disciplining His own kids, don't think for a second He's not going to hammer this wicked world. God is a loving Savior. But he is also a righteous judge. Verse 18, for now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? You see what he's saying? If Christians limp into heaven with a poor witness, where does that leave the unbelievers? Oh, we owe it to this world to shine brightly for Jesus' sake. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Again, it's possible to suffer according to the will of God. Notice that. Some Christians think that all suffering is a sign that you've missed God's will. Not so. Following God often brings persecution. It brings suffering. You know, follow God and two things are sure to happen. Number one, you're going to get into some trouble. It's true. You follow God and you'll get into some trouble on this earth. But second, you'll also see the hand of a faithful creator. Well, chapter 5 begins, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Now notice Peter classifies himself here a fellow elder. And this is why it's preposterous for Roman Catholicism to label Peter as the first pope. Peter never exalted himself above a fellow elder. And as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, though Peter followed at a distance, he was there when Jesus was tried and scourged and nailed to the cross. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' sufferings. And he was also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Remember, Peter saw Jesus' sufferings, and his glory in Matthew 17 along with James and John it was Peter who was taken to the top of Mount Hermon where Jesus was transfigured before them his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light Jesus' humility was peeled back and the glory the disciples got a glimpse of Jesus' glory And these experiences witnessing both Jesus' sufferings and his glory are what humbled Peter he wasn't first among the elders. He was a fellow elder and a witness. And Peter encourages his fellow elders: "Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you." You know the word "pastor" means shepherd, and like a shepherd, a pastor's job is to tend and mend, to feed and to lead. And a pastor has to be vigilant, for a flock is vulnerable to predators. Pastors are also to serve as overseers, a pastor or an elder. He oversees. He sees the big picture. He thinks ahead. He looks out for God's people physically and spiritually. He should be several steps ahead of the rest of the flock. And he's to serve not by compulsion, but willingly. In other words, being an elder or a pastor isn't a duty. It's a blessing and a privilege. And a man should do it cheerfully. And not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Financial reward should never be the goal of a spiritual leader. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. An elder or a pastor shouldn't have to throw his weight around. He shouldn't pull rank on other people. He shouldn't lord it over people. He should lead by example and earn people's trust. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Elders and pastors are merely under-shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And he promises a crown to leaders who serve with his interests at heart. Now he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. You, you need to show some respect to the people who've gone before you. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God, he opposes the proud. You just need to know that if you line up on the other side of the ball from the proud, you know, that's where you need to be lining up, on the other side of the ball. If you line up on the same side of the ball as the proud, you're not on God's team. You need to know that. He resists the proud. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Hey, you work on being humble and God will exalt you in his time. He says in verse 7, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. And that's why we need to turn all of our cares into prayers. You know, a friend of mine once told me, he says, Sandy, always turn your cares over to God before you go to bed. He's going to be up all night anyway. God can be trusted, be sober, be vigilant. In other words, be on guard. And why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I've been told that the roaring lion is not the one you worry about. He's the decoy. For when little Bambi prances down the path, and the roaring lion jumps out and starts snarling and growling and making fierce noises, You need to know that that's all he can really do is roar. For the roaring lion is the old toothless lion. He still remembers how to look menacing, but he's as harmless as a kitty cat. And yet the roaring lion strikes fear in Bambi's heart. And so she spins around and she flees in the opposite direction, right into the jaws of the young lions waiting for the kill. You see, Satan is the roaring lion. He's the toothless one. Jesus declawed him on the cross. Now, through the power of Jesus, Satan is as harmless as a kitty cat. The only way he can defeat you is through fear and intimidation. That's why we need to stand our ground and trust in Jesus. This leads to verse 9. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Don't run. Resist. If you run and turn your back on Satan... You expose the part of your anatomy not protected. You remember Ephesians chapter 6 describes the whole armor of God? And there's protection for every part of the body except the back. This is why we should not back down, but be strong. James 4 verse 7 reads, Resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Muster a resistance, and Satan is forced to flee. And persevere in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're never alone in suffering for Christ. There are Christians all over the world today who are enduring persecution. We should pray for them. Verse 10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, and of course compared to forever, it's just a little while, Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And Christ the best is always yet to come. For to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now to close here, Peter makes a few personal remarks. He says, By Salvanus, that is Silas, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. Recall, Silas was Paul's sidekick on his second and third missionary journeys. Apparently, at this time, he was with Peter, and he possibly penned this letter that Peter dictated. By Salvanus, Peter wrote, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Now, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. It's possible that Peter wrote this letter from the city of Babylon on the Euphrates River, and yet there's no record or tradition of him ever making it that far east. I think a better interpretation here is that he wrote from spiritual Babylon, from the capital of idolatry and paganism, which was the city of Rome. And the church at Rome sends its greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Notice, Peter had the same kind of relationship with Mark that Paul had with Timothy. Mark was Peter's young protege, his son in the faith. In fact, the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Eusebius, tell us that Mark's gospel was in reality the reflections of Peter recorded by his disciple Mark. Peter ends, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Notice, not a lustful, erotic kiss. Not a hypocritical Judas kiss. No, a holy kiss. A kiss of love. Make your greeting, whether it be a handshake or a fist bump or a kiss, make it sincere and pure. And when we greet one another, we shouldn't shy away from physical touch. One of the Korean girls that we used to host uh, at Calvary Chapel here, uh, for several years, she said that she liked the skinship she felt at our church. She was referring to all the hugging that we do. But she didn't call it fellowship. She called it skinship. And I get it. Humans need healthy contact with other humans. And so don't be afraid of getting a little touchy and experiencing a little skinship from time to time. He says, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus, amen.